Good morning, everyone. It's uh, lovely to see you all here. Welcome to any visitors joining with us. Isn't it great to meet together, to see each other? Uh, but our focus is God, the living God, and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And to help us to think about that, I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm 9. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Well, that leads us into our first song that we'll stand to sing together. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall. There is still one king reigning over all, so I will not fear, for this truth remains that my God is the Ancient of Days. Our Bible reading this morning is uh, in Luke, Luke chapter 22, which is on page 882, if you're using the church Bible. And you might remember that last week we were thinking about Jesus' words to the disciples at the Passover meal that they were celebrating. And um, there were three aspects, as you can remember from last week, of discipleship that the disciples would face, what it would be to live as a disciple. It was humble service temptation survival, and battle readiness. So Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 54. 
And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. We'll never, ever fully understand and really come to terms what Jesus suffered, both on the cross and through what we read about this morning. And uh, may God help us to understand more and be reminded again of what it costs to bring salvation to all of us who put our trust in Christ. And we're going to sing our second hymn now. And that explores that kind of thought. The second verse says, We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. And then after we've sung this, Josh will uh, do the children's talk, and then John will lead us in prayer. Let's sing.
morning. Good morning. Good morning. Is everyone excited to be at church today? I hope so. Well, speaking of exciting things, something very exciting happened in our family recently. I think most of you probably know what it was. What happened in our family recently? We did have a baby. It was very, very exciting. And last week, we brought baby Esther to church for the first time. And when you bring a baby to church, what happens is loads of people come up to you and they want to have a little look at her and they want to talk to you about her. What do you think, when people were coming up, what do you think they said to us about baby? That she's cute. Yeah, definitely. We got a lot of that. Any, what, what, what else do you think people said? Come on, Jess. Congratulations, yeah. Um, do you think people um, said anything about what she looked like? What people do is they come up and they say, oh, she's just like you. She's just like the mum. She's just like the dad. And apparently, she's got my nose. <laughs> but it's not just the way that she looks that's of interest. It's also the way she is. And we think probably when she grows up, she'll probably end up being a little bit like me or a little bit like her mum in the things that she likes, the, thing, the way that she talks, the things that she's interested in. Who is she like? I wonder who you guys think you are like. If I said to you, who are you like, would you say that you're a bit like mum, a bit like dad? Is anyone a little bit like their mum or dad? I am. Some people are a little bit embarrassed to put their hands up there. Some of the older kids. <laughs> what about brothers and sisters? If you've got brothers and sisters, are you a bit like your brothers or sisters? I am, a little bit, some of them. Oh, definitely some of those hands aren't going up. <laughs> or maybe friends. Maybe you're a bit like your friends because you kind of copy them a little bit. I definitely do that, yeah. Well, we're going to look at the Bible and see what that says about who we are like. And hopefully it's going to appear up here. Brilliant. Can anyone read this out for me? Can I have a good reader? You can read it out. Yes, please. So God created human beings in his image. So this is right at the beginning of the Bible. God says that he created human beings, so God made us in his image. What does that mean, in his image? What do you think that means? Like him, exactly. So if I did a picture, a self-portrait, I'm sure we've all done that, I would try to make it look a bit like me. And you'd look at it and you'd say, that is like you. Or another, another way we could look at it is a little bit like this. What's this? Yes. Can you see yourself? Yeah. Why can you see yourself? It reflects. Very good. Very good word. Yeah. So the mirror reflects so you can see yourself. So you could say that when God made us, it was a bit like he was making lots of little mirrors. We're like little mirrors. And when God looked at us, he said, I can see myself in them. And when other people look at us, they can see a bit of God. So when we're, when we're nice, when we're kind, when we look after our friends, we are being like God. Don't you think that's amazing? If you've ever sort of thought, I'm not very big, I'm not very strong, I'm a bit rubbish, the Bible says we are like God. I think that's amazing. But if you're, uh, if you're thinking about it, you might think, well, actually, what about when we're not very nice? Who's not very nice sometimes? <laughs> Definitely me. When we're not very nice, are we reflecting God? Not very well. It's a little bit like this one. Uh-oh. What happened here? It broke, yeah. And it was very difficult to break it like this, actually. <laughs> so, But can you still see yourself? Yeah? How do you look? How do you think you look? There's more of you, yeah. It makes you look a bit different. Look a little bit weird, a little bit messy. Because we, we don't reflect God perfectly, we're a little bit like broken mirrors, yeah? So when we look at each other, we can still see amazing things that reflect God, but it's not quite right. It's a little bit like a broken mirror. So it's good that we reflect God, but the bad news is we don't reflect him perfectly. We're like broken mirrors. But the best news is this. What's this? Sellotape, yeah, thank you. Sellotape, what do we use this for? Fixing stuff, perfect, yeah. So this this is a little sign that God can solve our problem, that we're broken mirrors. God can forgive us. When we go to God 
and we say we're sorry for all of those uh, wrong things that we've done, God forgives us because of Jesus. What did Jesus do? He died on the cross. He died on the cross to forgive us. So when we say we're sorry to God, we're forgiven straight away. But then God, he doesn't just do that. Jesus fixes us. So although we're still like broken mirrors, although we're still not perfect, over time God will make us so that we are again like perfect mirrors that reflect him perfectly one day. Brilliant. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Great, thank you. Well, shall we uh, come to God in prayer? Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we want to bow before you in our hearts and come and worship. And we praise you for the fact that you are unchangeable and eternal and always the same. You are our ancient of days as we have been singing And we thank you for that through the tumult, the ups and downs, the highs and lows of life, to know of you as the unchanging God. We worship you this morning. We praise you as our creator. We've been reminded that we were made in your image. We thank you for the wonder of creation and of life, of the things that are enjoyed uh, and the things we see around us. We thank you for the beauty of this morning. We praise you as our creator. We ask we may remember that you are our creator. And we praise you that you are the God who sent his son to the cross. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to come. We thank you that we've sung about that in our second song in thinking of how forgiveness comes through Jesus. We praise you for Jesus and we pray to understand more about him. Lord, we we want to know more of your glory. Moses prayed, show me your glory. And we want to know more of your glorious, brilliant character. And we know that so much of it is shown through the cross. Lord, we come in need of what Jesus did on the cross, of that mending that we've just heard about. Uh, The image is broken and we come saying sorry for our Uh, And the many ways in which we haven't reflected your image, sometimes to those we love. We're sorry for the times we do wrong things. And we're sorry for the times we say wrong things. And we're sorry for the times that we think wrong things. And we're sorry for the times when we do right things or say right things, but the motives inside are are proud and self-serving and that's so often the case but it's much more than we realise when even our good things are just lined with selfishness and pride. Lord, forgive us and wash us clean and we thank you for the cross and we pray that the love that you showed at the cross will be love that works through in our lives as we are mended and changed and we are transformed to be increasing in the image of your Son. Lord, help us to be people that want to take that message of the cross out to others when we have opportunity, sensitively, rightly, lovingly, but clearly. Lord, we, we do pray that you as Lord of the harvest will uh, raise up and place us and others as workers within your harvest to pass on the gospel message to others. Help us uh, to be on the lookout to uh, lovingly, wisely, sensitively, but faithfully pass on the gospel when we have opportunity to to friends and to acquaintances and to neighbours and maybe to strangers if the opportunity just opens up in the way that you arrange it. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that are there are around the place to pass on your word. And some of us have been thinking this week of the opportunities that some have in university settings. And we do pray for the events weeks at universities that occur around this time of the year. We think of uh, the one that's been at Reading 
this week and uh, Winchester this week and we pray for those involved in that and for any follow-on there is that there may be interest in some of the minds and hearts of the students. We pray for others uh, being planned in the coming months where there's a lot of frantic activity and planning and publicity and inviting and organising. We pray that they will be really good uh, opportunities to broadcast the gospel on those campuses. Lord, we do pray that you would be with those that we know of who are especially involved with the passing on of the gospel. We think beyond our own shores and we do pray for Cyprus and the services there today that your blessing may be upon the things that are said from your word. Uh, we pray for James and Rachel as they head back later this week to responsibilities there. We ask that you'd give them strength and encouragement as they return to their uh, labours for you on that island. And we particularly commit you the student seminars which are be planning and which are coming up so soon. We ask that they will be a real help to the students they seek to serve there in northern Cyprus. We pray for Rosie too in Papua New Guinea and the uh, uh, difficulties sometimes and discouragements of the service that she's involved with there. We pray you'd give her wisdom and um, stamina and grace and help to be of big influence amongst the churches and uh, especially the the women of the churches there as they seek to bring the gospel uh, increasingly to people in the island of Papua New Guinea. Lord, we want to pray for those amongst our own congregation who um, are going through difficult times and ask that you might draw alongside them. We pray that this morning might be helpful as they see what Jesus went through and that they might be able to take encouragement and blessing from all that he did. We pray for those um, in hospital at this time, for Betty in Crowborough, for Margaret Payne, Uh, in Tunbridge Wells due to come home this week and for um, Jackie in with uh, Amber May and we ask Lord that they may know your Holy Spirit to draw alongside them and give them peace, encouragement, blessing and hope. We also remember those who are largely confined to um, a nursing home these days even though for so much of their life they would have been joining us here. We remember Muriel and we remember Christine And we pray for Hetty too and ask for your blessing upon them as they perhaps feel their isolation and loneliness and miss out on worshipping with others. Lord, we remember as well in our nation, the royal family at this time, with a lot of uh, difficulties heading their way, we ask for our Queen to be given grace and wisdom, to be kept by you, to be strengthened in faith in you and to be helped in all the things that she is involved with. We pray for uh, the government and those in high office in this time of tumult and confusion and difficulty. We pray for stability and righteousness and wisdom in our nation. Lord, we pray that as this morning our minds uh, turn to Jesus, as we go through these passages approaching the cross, We do pray that you would soften our hearts. We pray that we might be taken up with Jesus. We pray we might understand more of what he did. We pray that our faith may be deepened. We're grateful for so many here, different ages, different backgrounds. Lord, do bless many this morning as we're in your word. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right, we're going to come to our third hymn now, our third song. It's one that might be quite well known as a chorus to many of you. Uh, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. In the more recent years, it's been enlarged to to have several verses. Um, Some of the ladies know it well because they sang it on the women's retreat uh, a few months ago. You'll know the the main verses well. The the chorus might just take a little bit of getting used to. But the reason we're singing it now is because we're coming into a passage where we're going to be especially thinking about Jesus. So it is a prayer for us, really, that our minds might be turned to the Savior. 
Saviour as we come to read about him in God's word. Let's sing then, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Well, we have two main events uh, this week as we carry on in Luke. You'll be an advantage if you have a Bible in front of you or a Bible app in front of you because we shall uh, look down to some of the verses and it will help you to follow. Uh, both of these events are what Luke just, uh, the, uh, are where Luke just calls it the place in verse 40. The place. It's clear we're on the Mount of Olives, according to Luke. That's the hillside um, east of Jerusalem. We know from the other accounts, the other Gospels, where actually there's more information and more detail than in Luke on these accounts, that this is actually a garden. And it is the Garden of Gethsemane. That is the place we're at. That is what the picture is there of the Garden of Gethsemane because it is a place that you can still visit, part of that garden. We had the privilege of visiting there a couple of years ago, and it's a very thoughtful place. We, we looked, we thought, we took photos, and uh, we had a, a guide explain some of the things to us. Many of the trees there are centuries old olive trees in the garden as Gethsemane. 
It's a place where Jesus often went to. So it says in verse 39 that it is his custom and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. It was a place of retreat, a place of prayer and a place where an insider knew that Jesus was going to be and could tip off those who wanted to get to Jesus and apprehend him in a more private setting. Luke records two things that happen there, and that's what we're looking at today. There is distress and there is drama. It is the focus of a deep spiritual battle. The significance of Gethsemane if you like, pulsates out. This is such a significant point in human history, what is happening in this place in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you wanted to just pocket one verse from our passage, which highlights the significance of it, you could go to verse 42, where Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, we're going to take what happens in this place in two halves. We'll probably spend a a bit longer on the first half and perhaps in the first part of the first half. But it is a privilege for us, I think, to be on these events this morning. And we see firstly that uh, this place, Gethsemane, is the place of his anguish. It is the place of his anguish. may seem strange. Peaceful, tranquil garden, and yet a place of anguish. A place of deep anguish and agony. A place where it's as if Jesus feels he's looking down the barrel Much of what happens, especially in this first half of what we're looking at, is tied up with prayer. They arrive to the garden. Jesus gives some instructions, which we will come back to uh, a little bit later. And then Jesus prays. So we find here that Jesus is praying. We see Jesus praying. I don't know how far you can throw a stone. 30 metres, 50 metres, maybe a bit bit more. Well, that's the distance that Jesus goes from his disciples, we're told. And he kneels down to pray, showing earnestness, thoughtfulness, a depth And he came and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, something we'll come back to, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed. Jesus often prayed. Luke often tells us that Jesus is praying. It's a frequent thing, and especially at main crisis points in his life, Jesus is found praying. Good lesson for us. And his prayer here is deeply significant. We have here, if you like, a window both on his own heart and our history. His own heart and our history. His prayer is in our main verse, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We see here, don't we, um, a natural longing to avoid what is ahead, if at all possible. It says, the next few days are like a horror movie to Jesus. And he recoils from going forward into them. So much within him wants to avoid and retreat what is ahead, avoid what is ahead, that he says, Father, he can still pray intimately, Father, 
If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Don't let me face it. We can partly identify with this sort of thing that Jesus is praying, can't we? We have times of dread. Things ahead we would love to avoid. The operation, uh, the difficult encounter, the new experience which we feel so frightened of, the dreaded event which is coming our way. We, we know something, a little, of what Jesus feels, but of course this is nothing compared to Jesus. The physical torment looms in front of him. A physical experience of torture which is almost the worst in human history, crucifixion. Alongside it, the, the social rejection, the humiliation, the mockery. The mental experience of going through what he's going to going through. But more than these, he feels the spiritual weight of what is ahead. And it is from that that he most recoils. What does this mean then when he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. What is this cup? Well, in the Old Testament, so frequently... The cup used in this way refers to the cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's justice. The cup of God's fury. I could read you different references. I'll just give you one to, to, to back up. Isaiah 51 and verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his Wrath. So, we just can't understand this, can we? But perhaps we can start to understand it a bit better. The mass of God's righteous anger with sin, with the sin of the world, that justice, that judgment was going to be drunk by Jesus as he goes to the cross. That is what it means by the cup. Uh, perhaps as a, a child, um, you sometimes had to drink medicine that you didn't like and you go yuck and your head shakes and you have to get it down you to do you better, but you don't like it. Well, Jesus had in front of him something so much worse, the awful, bitter cup of experiencing wrath and judgment of people's sin on himself as he goes to the cross. And he dreads it. He recoils from it. He's never felt the frown of his father before and he senses what is going to happen as he becomes the object of sin and judgment before his father. That's not wrong to pray for relief, for avoidance, for escape. And so he does pray in verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. But there's a second half to this prayer. He carries on, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Despite the horror of what's ahead, he is willing to go through with it. He's submissive to what's required. He wants to do the Father's will. He wants to do what is necessary out of love for the salvation of his people. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In many ways, he is in the valley of dark decision. But his resolve is to do what needs to be done. He is willing to go ahead. There's a pattern here for us in our prayers. We pray to be spared things, to avoid things, um, to escape from things, 
That's not wrong. But he carries on here, nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Submissive prayer. Pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a good pattern for us, and it's not always easy. It reminded me of a dear old lady, some of you will remember her, uh, Margaret Palmer. I, I went to see her, I think she was probably about 98 at the time, and um, she'd been unwell and... Uh, she knew she might need to go from her residential home to hospital and, and she didn't want to go. Well, that's understandable. She didn't want to head off to hospital to be unwell enough to go there. But she said, but I, I had to pray, not what I want, but what you want. Not what I want, but what you want. I thought, wow, 98-year-old, already weak and unwell, praying the prayer of Jesus of submission. Remarkable. It's a pattern for us to pray. But Jesus, of course, was facing much more than a hospital visit. The, the, the dread of taking on, on himself the guilt and shame and judgment of others, being labelled guilty, and yet Jesus was willing to do that, and I'm immensely thankful, and and probably so many of you this morning are immensely thankful that Jesus said he was willing to go forward despite the horror that was in front of him at Gethsemane. Luke then records something that uh, the other gospel writers don't record. It comes up in verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. He's comforted and strengthened and helped as he faces what he needs to go through. Well, I don't suppose we will have an angel pop up as we go through our troubles, but many of us have known the strength and help of the Holy Spirit as we face difficulties. But notice it's strength and help in the anguish, not instead of the anguish. It's in the anguish, not instead of the anguish. Because it carries on after the strength thing. In verse 44 it says this, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. It's an agony, there's an anguish. We can't fathom it. We, we get more light in the other Gospels. Mark says this, that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. Maybe you've been through mental anguish, mental difficulties, mental confusion. Well, there's some comfort here that Jesus knew what it was to be greatly distressed and troubled. And it affects him so much that he is sweating profusely. In fact, it, it seems it may even be that he experiences what's something which is called hematidrosis. It's a rare condition under pressure where the capillaries actually burst and people do sweat blood. So whether it's like blood or some condition like this, Jesus is under tremendous pressure. Verse 44 carries on, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's like system overload. But he rises from prayer, willing to do the Father's will, resolute to die for the guilt of others. Jesus praying. There's a lot in that first part, isn't there? A lot to take in, a lot to understand. And then what does he find as he walks, if you like, the stones throw back to his friends? Well, we see this. Disciples not praying. Disciples not praying. He had instructed them something before he left. That was the verse 40. I jumped. Let me read that now. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That was his instruction to, to pray. And he left them himself to pray. 
And Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus came back on two occasions before this from his prayer and he found them sleeping. And now he comes back a final time in verse 45. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. So they should have been supporting him in prayer at his moment of crisis. but they're overcome with doziness. They've had a sorrowful evening, they've had a stressful evening, and they're asleep. Now, sleepiness is uh, sometimes understandable. Sometimes look out and I see sleepiness on a Sunday morning, and some of that will be understandable sleepiness. Sometimes uh, sleepiness is... uh, It reflects a heart which doesn't care and which is negligent. And Jesus needs to correct here the sleepy disciples. And so he says to them in verse 46, he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. There's a stark contrast, isn't there, between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is praying, they are sleeping. Jesus is spiritually engaged, they are spiritually dopey. In his battle in Gethsemane, he is in a point of temptation through his thoughts. The devil is putting pressure on him to to shortcut the plan of salvation. There is a, a, a moment of temptation and he was praying. And the disciples needed to learn the lesson too in their temptation, in the face of temptation, to be prayerful. Disciples needed to learn the lesson to pray. Well, uh, are we spiritually sleepy? Are we just oblivious to the things that are happening? Unaware of the forces around us? Unaware of the temptations that are pulling us, yanking us away? Not thinking to pray through our days? Not thinking to pray through our dangers? Do we need to hear the words of Jesus? Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The disciples not praying. Well, the events then unfold quickly. Uh, We're told, while he was still speaking, it says, at the start of verse 47... And we see as we move on to our second half that the place of his anguish also becomes the place of his arrest. The place of his arrest. A crowd was coming up the hillside. A mass of torches and lanterns can be seen coming nearer. It will end with them seizing and arresting Jesus. That's what it says in our very last verse, verse 54. Then they seized him. So we see this is the place of his arrest. And as I thought about it this week and looked at, look at what Luke especially says, it seemed to me that there were three things that he focuses on. As we think of this place, of the arrest of Jesus. The first is the betrayer's lips. The betrayer's lips. So the leader of the party coming closer is no other than Jesus, Judas. There's still a sense of astonishment. He is one of the twelve. He uses his inside information to bring them to this private place, this garden where Jesus will be out of the public eye with his disciples. In the dark, there could be confusion over who to arrest. So Judas has agreed a sign. He would kiss Jesus. That was a custom, a bit more between men of their culture than our culture. It's a sign of affection. It was a greeting. And so he says in verse 47, it says, He drew near to Jesus 
to kiss him. Jesus, Jesus highlights his inconsistency, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So it's, it's not cloak and dagger, it's, but it's almost kiss and dagger. It's deceptive, it's betrayal. A sign of affection to lead them to arrest his friend. And if I can just say this, betrayal is, is I think, one of the worst human experiences. If you don't know that, then good. But some of you may. To be let down by those close to you is hard to get over. Especially when it's accompanied with deceptiveness, flattering words, kind things said. I remember being aware of a, a woman phoning a relative night after night in tears over the way her husband was cheating her. Jesus experienced betrayal as part of his suffering. Maybe it's a help that you can see that in his experience. The betrayer's lips. But then as we go a little further, Luke talks about the servant's ear. The servant's ear. The sleepy disciples... And now burst into action, really. They're still very sword-minded, as they were last week. Um, And one of them wields his sword. John tells us that this is actually the disciple Peter. And he cuts off the ear, the right ear, of the high priest's servant. Someone has said it was either a very good swing... Or a very bad swing. In other words, he was either aiming for the ear or he was aiming to do something worse and missed. But the servant loses his ear. What is Jesus' reaction to all this hustle and bustle, to this harm and damage? We read it in verse 51. But Jesus said no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus had told his disciples earlier to love their enemies. And here it is in action. Jesus has compassion on those who arrest him. He doesn't just say, serves you right. You're doing something that's unjust. He touches, just Luke records this, he touches the, the man's ear and he heals him. It must have been astonishing, wasn't it, for the man? Presumably there was an ear down there and there's another ear restored up here. It won't be the last time that Jesus shows compassion on those that hurt him. You can think perhaps of other episodes we've come to. And maybe you have those who have hurt you or are hurting you. And situations like this can be very complicated can't they? can be very complicated. But can I ask, is there room in your situation, you know, think of it, where you'll be, is there room in your situation where you can seek for healing rather than hurting? For healing rather than hurting for the person who's so against you and unkind to you? Well, as well as showing his compassion, I think this shows that Jesus is in control of the situation. If he can heal a man's ear like that, he could get himself out of the situation of arrest. He is being arrested, but he's letting himself being arrested or be arrested. John says that at this time Jesus spoke the words, I am, and the whole crowd were flattened. Matthew records that Jesus also said that he could summon, if he wanted, a whole army of angels to confront and defeat those approaching him. 
Jesus is willingly giving himself over. As he says elsewhere in John 10 and verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Talking of his life. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. And this ties in with the last point that uh, Luke brings us to. So the betrayer's lips, the servant's ear, and I think we could say the leader's hands. The leader's hands. What are they carrying? Well, the leaders and those with them, those hired, are carrying swords and clubs, we're told. They're treating Jesus as um, a common thief, as a common thief, even though he has done no wrong. They're coming to lay hands on him. Out of cowardice, they, they wouldn't do it in public. It's a secret seizing, if you like. So in verses 52 and 53, it says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness as I arrested him. It was night, so it was dark, but in another sense it was a dark hour. It was a dark time spiritually. Evil men were doing what was unjust. Powers of satanic darkness were behind the capture of of Jesus. And in one sense, um, Jesus, if you like, is in their hands. They lay hands on him, they arrest him. They do as they please with him, in one sense. But wonderfully, Jesus is in bigger hands, if I can put it like that. God is working his purpose out in these events. It may be the hour of darkness, but it will prove to be the masterstroke for the light of the world. It may be the hour of darkness, but it will give way to the light of the resurrection morning. Christ has died for his people and is raised to prove it. The place of his arrest is not the final story. It will lead on to the cross and the resurrection. So we've looked at this place, place of anguish, place of his arrest. Just want to say one thing just to finish. Um, when we were there in Gethsemane, having looked round uh, the part of the garden that's open to the public, having thought, having taken our photos, we then sat down on some steps. There was a building, a sort of church building um, near, near there. We sat down. Uh, one of our guides gave us some um, explanation. We had a couple of helpful talks about what was happening. But one of the things that was ironic to me was this. Um, the place of those steps is right near a main road now. It just about comes out, I think, on, on this picture of us having um, the, the guide speak to us. Where they're on their steps, thinking about Gethsemane, which is just behind us, and just the other side of those railings or those gates, there is a main road, and the traffic is shooting past. There's traffic lights, there's noise, motor noise, people are hooting and bibbing. There's so much bustle and activity just the other side of that fence, and there we're thinking about Christ and what he went through. And it seems somehow a bit inconsistent. There we are in a place of such thoughtfulness and wonder and others would just carry on with life driving past us up as nothing. And as we finish having looked at Gethsemane, this place this morning, just want to, well, I suppose, I suppose in a way I'm asking which side of the fence are you? Are you going to go out from here, hustle, bustle, life as normal, just forget what's happened 
Or are you going to be thoughtful about this place of anguish and this place of arrest? Well, I'll allow, uh, I'll encourage a time of just a little thoughtful personal prayer before we sing our last song. Well, we come then to our last song. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. You'll see it's relevant. I think if we can go forward, probably two slides, is it? To the court. Oh, well, there it is. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Well, shall we be amazed as we sing of Jesus our last song?
Oh Lord, we know we have been um, in deep things, in serious things this morning as we've had a glimmer of light on what Jesus went through and we thought about different aspects of suffering and our prayer life. But Lord, as we see the bigger picture of why he was going through, we do say how marvellous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love to me. Help us to remember what it cost him. Help us to go forward with thankfulness, relief and joy because Jesus laid down his life for us. Amen.